I um, I don't know that I've been uh, as eager um, in recent memory to come to Sunday school. Um, th- this is really going to be cool. Um, as I'm getting into Isaiah, like you, uh, I am not an expert on Isaiah. Um, I'm in this study with you, and I just have the privilege of being the tour guide. But um, this is really going to be an exciting story, uh, story, uh, study, and it is a story too, true story. Um, but I just, I don't know. Once you get into Isaiah, it will surprise you what is there. I mean, certainly there are difficult sections, and there are parts that are just, it just seems like judgment after judgment after judgment, and, and we're going to see, see why that's important to understand. But um, open your Bible with me to Isaiah chapter 2, and let's, uh, let's resume our study. And I just, just really stood in awe of what this chapter means and how it is so incredibly relevant. Uh, this book that, uh, that stands over us uh, over 2,700 years old. I mean, just think about that, 2,700 years old, and yet so, so relevant uh, for what we're looking at today. So, so what I want to do is, um, is read, uh, well, well, we'll work our way through it, but Isaiah chapter 2, uh, the title of the message today is A Vision of Hope and the Threat of Judgment. And uh, you'll see those two themes come together. The first section is about a what? A vision of, and the second part of it, guess what, is about a and you're going to see this. You're, you're going to see the author pivot back and forth into these themes. So as you're reading Isaiah, you're looking for where's the hope, and then you're looking also for what's the threat of judgment. And he goes back and forth between those two themes, and, and you'll see it illustrated very clearly uh, here. Now, before we jump into the, the nuts and bolts here, I just want to give you kind of an outline of what the next few chapters are going to look like. Uh, my, my favorite uh, commentary, or becoming my favorite commentary, um, helps. Uh, I've adapted something that uh, that he came up with here, but just so you can kind of see what's going on. So the first part of our chapter today, we're going to see this vision of the Jerusalem to come. Uh, Pastor Terry is going to be in Jerusalem here in the next 10, 12 days. And the Jerusalem that he will see is not the same as the Jerusalem to come. Not the same as the Jerusalem that you'll see described in the book of Isaiah. And, and, and we'll get there in just a minute. And so Isaiah is going to give this amazing reminder of what's going to happen. This is the culmination of God's plan, and this is the redemption of his people, and and this city, Jerusalem, will be the beacon of hope for the nations one day. That's part of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, and that's part of uh, the, the promises given to Israel. And then with that vision in mind, Isaiah shifts gears and says... Well, let's see what we're doing like today. And he paints this contrast, this, this, hor- this scene that is so incredibly wicked. You go, is this even the same city? Is this vision of hope for the future in Jerusalem, is that even possible in light of what's going on today? And he's going to talk about two particular challenges that they were facing. One is their spiritual condition and one is their social condition. And both of those are grievous as the author unfolds them to us. And then in chapter 4, 
which we'll see in a couple of weeks, he comes back and again paints that picture. It's like, it's like he so discouraged them with the way things are. He says, but really, really, I'm telling you, things are going to be different in the future because God is faithful to his promises. Okay, so that's a little outline uh, that you can uh, keep in mind as we, we jump in here. Okay, so chapter 2, verse 1. Are you there? The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we get this little introduction. Now, the thing we need to see is that the verses that follow, verses 2 to 4, those same verses with, with a, a few variations also occur in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. So, uh, um, so look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Okay, let's just jump in here. Now, it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, which mountain is that? That's Zion, and, and what geographically does that, does that reference? Okay, that's the mountain, that's the, the, the peak that Jerusalem is built on, okay? Um, and again, you know, Cece's been there, some of you guys have been there, that uh, surrounding Jerusalem are these ascending hills, and then Jerusalem is built up on this plateau, and um, that was what was called Zion, okay? So that's the mountain that's referenced here. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established, verse 2, as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war? Now, what's interesting is, if you flip over to Micah 4, we won't do that right now because it's just going to say the same thing as what we read, but I want to give you that reference because the same prophecy is given there. Now, remember, Micah, that should be lived, excuse me, Micah lived and ministered at the same time as Isaiah. So let's go back to the chart we looked at several weeks ago. So here's Isaiah's ministry, okay? It starts around 1740, concludes in the early um, parts of the the 600s here. So you see Isaiah's ministry spans, and here's the kings, right? Um, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings in the southern kingdom that were in power. And uh, who do you notice is ministering right along, same time with him there? Who's with him? You got Hosea, so Isaiah's ministry overlaps with Hosea, but also Micah. You see, they overlap. They were contemporaries, right? They lived at the same time. They worked uh, alongside one another. So it's not surprising that the message of God given to both Isaiah and Micah would be similar, and in some cases even the same. Uh, This is God's version of surround sound prophetic ministry. It's not just one voice. They're surrounded by prophets that are all saying the same thing. That enhances the experience just like it enhances your experience when you listen to music that way. So that's what's going on. You say, well, uh, so how did that happen? And it's possible that both of these men received a similar vision from the Lord. That would make sense with all the overlap. But 
the language, look at chapter 2, verse 1, the, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So the way that language sets up seems to indicate that Isaiah was the first to receive it and then possibly passed it on to Micah. Okay, and again, we don't know for sure, um, but there's the background there. So to keep that in mind, and maybe some other time we'll, we'll study Micah and, and glean from it there. Now, all of you remember, well, not all of you. Some of you actually are too young to remember this, which is crazy. Most of us are old people and we remember that. Most of us remember these, don't we? You remember those? Okay, if you are under 20 years old, tell me what those are. Yes. The Twin Towers. And where would we find those? Okay. And these are, of course, the Twin Towers before what red letter date? You know? 9-11, that's right. Uh, September 11th, uh, 2001, right? And in a matter of minutes, those towers went from looking like that to that as two airplanes were flown fully fueled into them, eventually, uh, eventually causing their collapse. I mean, it just and I know it's been a while since we've seen these pictures, uh, think of that, the picture on the left to that, and the red boxes mark where the towers used, uh, used to stand, and, and as you know, both of them collapsed uh, as the uh, uh, heat of the uh, fire fueled by jet fuel uh, melted the superstructure, compromised the integrity of the building. Uh, leading to its collapse. Okay. Now, why do I show you that? What's just happened in Judah? There's been a raid. And the Israelites, the, the southern kingdom, they're looking at their nation. Remember the description in chapter 1? The fields are destroyed. Buildings have been run down. People have been killed. Judah is looking at their city and saying... What do we do? And you can imagine, like many Americans, those of us that lived through 9-11, and, and some of you have lived through other horrible acts of history. Maybe it's a war. Uh, many of you fought in our military in, in uh, Vietnam or Korea, other wars. Um, uh, maybe it's uh, some personal tragedy. But when something like this happens, you wonder... What's the future going to be? And imagine if at that time, and actually uh, um, President Bush got up and, and essentially said this in his address of the nation that day, don't worry because this is coming. And as you know, even now there's a series of buildings being rebuilt in that region, but that, that uh, tower there is what it looks like today. What's the point? The point is when you are discouraged and when you've had a, a tragedy, a, a, a destruction happen like that, you need some hope, some vision for the future that things are going to be okay. Uh, and I even want to suggest to you how important it is for us as Christians to have a vision of what the future is going to be like. Because I don't know how you feel, but uh, this life's pretty discouraging some days. And you wonder, 
are things going to get better? Or do you get bogged down in the details? So look with me at chapter 2, verse 2. And what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to say, guys, this is the hope of the future. This is the vision of what's coming. Don't be discouraged. Don't abandon the whole thing. Hang in there because God is working and this is what the future is going to look like, okay? Now notice this vision. Chapter 2, verse 2. All, let's see. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Now that will come about in that last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Can you imagine that? They're looking at their city. It's just been ransacked. Thankfully, God stepped in at the last minute to not completely annihilate Jerusalem. And the people are looking around going, what is our future? And Isaiah says, there's coming a day when Jerusalem is going to be the center attraction of the world. And people will flock to it. All people, Notice the language there. Nations, peoples, this is not just Jews regathering to the land. This is all nations coming to Jerusalem. Say, man, why would they want to come to our city? Just look at what's going on. Well, keep reading. Verse 3, and many peoples will, many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now why would they want to go? Look at verse 3. Why do they want to go? What does it say? That they will, that, uh, that who will teach us? That he may teach us, right? And why would they want to be taught by God? Look at the next part. It's because we're going to walk. Look at this. God is redeeming peoples and nations, and they want to flock to him, to, to his mountain, to his temple, to his center city, so that they can learn more from him. So that they can walk more in his ways. We say, what planet are we on here? Can you imagine that? I can't imagine that. Look at the world today. Not just the the regional hatred for Israel. We understand that. We can talk about Palestinians and Islam and and all that. We can talk about that another day. But just, just think of the global. No one cares about Israel. No one cares about God. No one's saying, hey, let's go there so that we can learn because we want to walk with this God. And so the vision here is of some time in the future where God is redeeming peoples and nations and they are all coming together saying, Lord, teach us more because we want to be faithful to do your work. What an encouragement that must have been to the people in Isaiah's day. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, read it. Yeah. Yes. All right. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. That's right. Okay, so all nations, many peoples come together. They come to Zion and Jerusalem to be taught by the Lord so that they can walk in his ways. Now look at this. Look at verse 4. It gets better. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. Okay, so who is ruling the world at this point? God is. What a difference. And, and let me just remind you, this, this is not Hollywood. This is, this is coming history. 
This is what's actually going to happen when God redeems the nations. And notice this. This is, this is really interesting. Look at the little description in verse 4. They'll take their hammer and they will hammer their swords into plowshares. What does that mean? It means peace, doesn't it? They're, they're, there's, there's no need for their swords, so they say, hey, let's convert these into you know, instruments of our agricultural needs, right? And he says, uh, the, likewise there, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. You know, there are a lot of people that um, desire world peace, uh, makes me think of my favorite bumper sticker. It says, uh, forget world peace. Try envisioning using your turn signal. You know, um, anyway. Um, but, sorry, just popped into my head. Um, but, you know, the problem is that vision today is pursued along the lines of diversity and tolerance and dismissing morals and ethics and values. And that, that's the way the culture thinks about peace, right? When we all understand each other and tolerate each other, there we are. Do you notice what's necessary for peace on earth, according to these verses? The Lord coming, and what is he going to do? He redeems first, and then those people come, and what happens? He divides the nations. He, he leads and rules over. So, so peace on earth only comes when the king of kings is ruling the land. And that's when it will happen. That's right. Yeah, so we see here that, that peace is not turning away from morality to diversity and tolerance. Peace is achieved when all of the nations submit to their creator as king of kings and lord of lords. That's when peace comes. So the Lord will rule over all and it will be a time of peace. Okay, now that's the vision. And Isaiah says, this day is coming that's why you don't have to be despairing because God is going to bring this about. Now, when will this happen? Well, if we go back to verse 2, it says, now in, this will come about that in the last days. Now, now, you need to get this. When is the last days? Don't you love controversy? That's why we're doing this, because, um, and, and we're, we're, I'm going to develop this for you more, so I'm just going to tease you a little bit right now so you have some way to think about it. But Isaiah is going to help us actually answer this question. The last days really comes, it is inaugurated when the Messiah arrives. Okay, and we're not going to do this right now 
but you know that Jesus regularly talked about the last days as being something that they were currently in in the first century. Okay? The last days are now. So the last days are, in a sense, inaugurated when Messiah arrives. We'll call this his first coming. And then, of course, he ascends and goes back to heaven, which means we're still in the last days. And then what's going to happen again? There's the second coming. And then that leads to the new heavens and the new earth. And a lot of whole, there's a lot of fun stuff that happens in there that we'll talk about later on. But here's the thing. In the Bible's viewpoint, the last days starts with Jesus' first coming and it concludes with the new heaven and the new earth. And at any point, when you read that little, when you read, when you read that little phrase, last days, it might refer to Jesus' first coming. It might refer to the time of his second coming or following. So you have to look at the context to understand what's actually being referenced. And here's the thing. Sometimes the Bible doesn't tell us which reference. In fact, one of the things we're going to see is that one of the things Isaiah does is Isaiah pulls the first coming and second coming of Jesus together and talks about them collectively a lot. Isaiah doesn't always differentiate between Messiah's first coming and his second coming. Now, some of the prophets do. Uh, Zechariah very specifically talks about two comings of the Messiah, and Isaiah does also. But the point is, sometimes they'll take the last days and they'll talk about it collectively other times that phrase will point particularly to the second coming or the first coming. Okay, that's just that's just kind of for free right now to keep you uh, keep you content. We'll get we'll develop this a little bit more as Isaiah goes. Now, with that in mind, this is coming right. This this wonderful day of restoration, of redemption, of God ruling His people, of peace on earth. Now, listen to the appeal. With that in mind, listen to the appeal. Verse five. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Since that day is coming, since God has promised that to us, what are we doing? Let's walk with Him. Let's walk in the light. Let's come to Him. Let's repent. And here's that same theme that we're going to see over and over again in Isaiah. Look at what we're doing. This is what God has promised us. And look at what we're doing. Let's repent and and go after him. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And why is that needed? Because the reality is the vision of the Jerusalem to come is not the present vision of Jerusalem. Well, you say, what's the present Jerusalem like? Well, let's read about it. What's going on in Isaiah's day that would provoke this call to repentance? Verse 6, for you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, uh, Because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses. And there is no end to their chariots. And yet, their land has also been filled with idols. And they worship the work of their hands that their fingers have made. So what is what are the gory details of the spiritual condition of the people of God in Isaiah's day? There's foreign influence. Did you catch that? They're being influenced, it says they're by the east, and that references some of the foreign nations. Uh, of course, what's to the west of Israel? 
a big, wa- a big body of water, right? So the, the foreign influences largely came from the east uh, to the south and sometimes to the north. Notice also, my Bible translates it soothsaying. What does your version say there in verse uh, 6? Okay, divination. It refers to witchcraft. And what was going on was they, uh, the people were being influenced by these other religions and they were being drawn to um, contacting spirits, going through rituals, acts of witchcraft, uh, acts of divination, soothsay, you know, uh, uh, looking for the future. Um, all of these things that the law of God forbid the people of God if we were to go back and look in Exodus and, and Deuteronomy. So they're involved in witchcraft, these, these uh, horrible demonic practices of the other nations. They were making deals with foreigners. Look at verse 6 again. It says here, they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Uh, it, there's actually some figurative language there, so it's hard to know exactly what Isaiah means. But he's, easy, he's, he's either saying they're making deals with, with foreigners in terms of they are worshiping alongside pagans that are worshiping false gods. Or perhaps they are engaging in economic pursuits. They're engaging in commerce. They're doing business together. They're buying and selling things. They're setting up businesses. But again, both of those things were uh, prohibited to the people of God. And, and notice in verse 7, notice the prosperous nature of their land. He's saying um, in verse 7, the land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasure. Their land has been filled with horses. Now, remember, their land has been ransacked. But Isaiah is saying, hey, you still have a land of blessing. But what is that land of blessing full of as well? It is full of idols. I couldn't help but put my pen down at this verse and think about our country. The most prosperous nation on earth. And utterly full of idolatry. Now, this book is not about America. It's not about the USA. It's about God's nation. It's about Israel. But good night. Can we learn from this? God says, look at what I've done. Look. There are people today that don't have clean drinking water. There are people today that don't have something to eat. I know that. I'm not, I'm not trying to let, you know, make everybody feel bad because we have it so good. That's not the point. But think about the context in which we live and how good we really have it in terms of material blessing. And what have we done? We have spoiled it on idolatry. What does Romans say? They do not acknowledge God or give thanks to God but they become futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Is that not what we've done? God has blessed. And instead of thanking Him and honoring Him, we turn away in rebellion and idolatry. What did idolatry look like in Isaiah's day? Well, let me introduce you to, to two gods, little g. Two gods, okay? Okay. The main Assyrian god was a god named Assur. That's where the name comes from. You can hear that, right? Assur. He was usually depicted as a winged creature. You can kind of see in this in this uh, uh, carving here. You can see the wings there. Really interesting. And uh, it, it was thought that Assur had a wife 
um, Asherah, and of course you know you know that name because both of these names appear in our Bibles, the Asherah or or the Ashtaroth, which is the plural version of Asherah, because the idea was that these were the main god and goddesses, and then from that they had children, right? All these other gods. So the the gods of the Ashtaroth would have been the gods begotten, so to speak, from this god and goddess couple, if that makes sense. So those are the, those are the gods that you see all over your Old Testament. They, they start in um, Canaan, you know, the Canaanite gods, uh, the Phoenician gods, Palestinian gods, um, all of those um, scattering of the nations from the Tower of Babel and on, all the ites, right, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Jebusites, and okay, all of them had gods. And so what we're thinking about in Isaiah's day, since Assyria is the superpower, this is the god of preference. Now remember, the nation that highly influenced this time as well, that's rising up, is the nation of what? What's going to take over Assyria here in a little bit? Babylon, okay? So they're rising up and Babylonian gods go back well beyond the time of of Babylon itself to, again, some of the really, really old gods that we just know as the god of the Baals, okay? And I know you've heard your whole life, it's Baal. That's not good Semitic pronunciation. So if you want to sound like a foreigner, say Baal, that's fine. Um, There's actually... There's actually a, a, an unpronounced uh, consonant in between the A and the A, which is why you pause, ba-all, okay? So there's your Semitic pronunciation lesson for the day. So there you go. So the gods of the Baals, this is, of course, I, I, Elijah's famous standoff on Mount Carmel, um, and we read about them ongoing. So, so those are kind of the two main gods that Isaiah is referencing as he's talking to the people and calling them out of uh, their idolatry here, okay? And, and you can't see, actually that's so hard to see, but he's depicted there as a man. And uh, so the gods of the Asur and the Asherah and then the gods of the Baals. And, and then from there we've got, you know, Dagon and Melech and, and all these different all these different deities. And actually just a fascinating study if you're interested in this to you know, pick your favorite Bible dictionary and look up foreign gods. And it, it gives you a lot of context for what was going on. I mean, a lot of these gods were calling for, you know, child sacrifice and, and pagan prostitute. I mean, crazy stuff. Um, but that's what's going on, okay? Now, here's the question. Here's the question I want you to think of. This is the question of the day. What attracted the Israelites to foreign gods? Okay, if, if you had... If you were a part of the family of God, you were a part of Yahweh's nation, and you had the covenants, you had the promises, you had all of this, and and you have a history that says God is faithful. It's not like they're going, well, is he going to do it or not? They've got a track record to look back on. What was the attraction? Why would God's people abandon him for foreign gods? Now, one of you said something a moment ago. What did you say? Intermarrying. Okay, it was about dating foreign girls. Mr. Parsons. Would would it be uh, just the mindset or the unsatisfaction of what you have? Okay. We're always reaching for something greater on the other side of the table. That's right. 
And we don't ever deal with that, do we? You know, you ever say oh, everything's great, but but if I just had this, yeah, exactly. So it's a lack of contentment, right? It's seeing the grass greener. It's looking at the prosperous nature of some of these other nations. And certainly Assyria is controlling the known world. And they're saying, man, wouldn't it be better off to be on their side? You're absolutely right. Yeah, Tara. Okay. Yeah. Walking by faith in God instead of by sight, right? And that, that attraction of, oh, but if I just had this, right? Okay, good. What else? Okay, coveting. You're doing great. Yeah, yeah, are you looking ahead? Look at this. Women intermarrying. That was Solomon, right? When Solomon was old, or it says uh, Solomon married uh, a thousand foreign girls. And when he was old, what did they do? They turned his heart away from the Lord. So Chris is absolutely right. It was about intermarrying. Children, because many of these gods were fertility gods. And, um, you know, maybe some of you have dealt with infertility issues. I know friends that have dealt with infertility issues. That's very hard, isn't it? That's very, very challenging. You want kids and you can't seem to have kids. And, hey, the Assyrians have a God that fixes this. The Assyrians have a God that will give you children if you do what he wants you to do. Okay, right? How about this? Power and security. Alliances with other nations. Remember the map? There's Israel surrounded by Assyria and they're going, maybe it might be good to make a treaty with these guys. And I know what our God says, but I also can look at geography. And the idea of having security and power. If, if, we, if we form treaties with these other nations, we don't have to worry about invasion, right? Wouldn't that be great to, to you know, go to bed with your family at night and to rest knowing we're not going to be invaded tonight because we've made a treaty with the enemy and, and they're going to protect us. And Cece's right. It was about sexual relations because cult prostitution was a huge part of foreign god worship and just like today sexual sin is a huge temptation it was then and it is now and finally prosperity the prospect again a lot of these gods these were gods of the weather these were gods of the fields these were gods that controlled the success of your crops these were gods that made you healthy wealthy and wise yeah so so you can you can see the attraction can't you you say man um those are all things we can relate to, can't they? Can't we? Now, look at this. Look at this for a minute. The key here is to see... Listen, this is, this is the takeaway for today, guys. You've got to get this. The key is to see that the idol or false god was simply a means of supplying some need or desire of ultimate value. That's the point. God is a vending machine. You appease him, he will give you what you want. Right? That sounds like uh, that sounds like Job, doesn't it? That sounds like the Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar script. It is. It's the same thing. It's retributive theology. It's God is a vending machine. And if your God isn't giving you what you want, maybe you go on to the next God and you do what he wants and he'll give you what you want. But guys, don't get caught up in the idea that idolatry has something to do with the statue or, or the God itself. Idolatry is always about 
you wanting to get something from God. And that something that you want is based on what you value. So for example, look at this. If what you value most is a relationship, you might be tempted to intermarry, right? If what you value most is having children, you might be tempted to go after a fertility God. If what you value most is security, you might be tempted to make an ungodly alliance. You see that? It's not about the God. It's about what the God can do for you. You with me? That's the danger of idolatry. Now, look at this. That's why, and we'll look at this another time because this is like an ongoing theme. Ezekiel in chapter 14 just puts all his cards on the table. He says, guys, it's not about the statues. It's about the idolatry of your heart. That's what God cares about. It's that your heart is looking to something other than Yahweh to supply your needs. And that's a problem. Now, watch this. I got a diagram don't look at the one in your picture yet, okay? I want to build it uh, in your notes. I want to build it for you, and then this will make sense, okay? What we value most is the issue. What we value the most. Who do we value the most? What do we value the most? And around that, based upon what we value, we form an idea of our allegiance, right? Who we're loyal to. What we value determines what we praise. What we value determines what we pursue for satisfaction, joy, and happiness. What we value ultimately leads to our actions. It leads to who or what we serve. It's what we ultimately submit to. It's what we turn to for security and peace. And it ultimately reflects what we love. Okay? And all of that sets the course of life. What we value and then those those applications of what we value or the things we pursue because we value that is what sets the course of life now what is this called it's called worship now you're thinking where's the guitar keith i don't see worship uh, guitar up there that's because worship isn't ultimately about a guitar it's about what you value most of all it's about what you love it's about your allegiance, it's about your loyalty, it's about who you serve, it's about what you praise, it's about what sets the course of your life. Who or what you worship based upon what or who you value most determines everything in your life. And that's why God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Because what is supposed to be in the center of that green box is Yahweh. Your creator, your savior, your God. He is of ultimate value. And when he's there, he sets your allegiance, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. What's that saying? Value God most of all. I mean, he's your creator. Can you have anything more valuable? And that then determines all of those other things, and those things set the course of your life. Now, in our fallenness, what do we do? We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. That's what fallen people do. What all of us do in our sin is we rip God out of that green circle, and we come up with something else to put in it, right? You know what I really value? Sports. That's what I live for. Success in life, 
children that walk with God go in that box. You know, we can put anything in that box, right? And make our life about the pursuit of that because we give it ultimate value. And that is what the Bible calls false worship or idolatry. Okay, you with me? This is all review, I think. But yes, Rich. It really does, because we can we can have something other than God in the center there, and then yet we go through all the same things. Um, and you know, this is this is um, uh, this is Lent in the Christian holiday. We're coming up on Passion Week. You think of people, you know, giving up something for Lent, and right? And we hear about all that. And you know, I turned on Fox News one night. Everybody's got ashes on their forehead. It's like, what, what did the makeup artist do that night? How, how does a makeup artist do that, by the way? You know. Make the makeup work with the ash. I don't know. I was just wondering that in my house that night. But exactly right. They can go through all the motions when their heart is far from God. Now, with that in mind, watch this. Idolatry then and idolatry now. Can I ask you a question? Let's go through that list again of idols that attracted the Israelites to foreign God. Do any of us struggle with an idol of relationships? Are we ever tempted to pursue a relationship as an ultimate goal against the wisdom and counsel of God? I'll put my hand up. I've been there. Anybody else can put their hand up if they want to. I've been there where that was my God. And the trouble that that caused is incredible. How about this? Children. Idols regarding children. Uh, moms, dads, do we ever struggle with idolatry regarding our children? Oh, I just want them to be Christians. I just want them to be healthy. I just want them to be successful. Right? I'll raise my hand on that one too. We struggle with that, don't we? And you know, we don't, we don't have... We might not be tempted by a fertility God, but good night. There is an industry out there that will guarantee all, well, will say they guarantee all sorts of things to allow you to have the idol related to your child. And people do crazy things, spend horrible amounts of money because they think if I can just find the magic formula, it's going to give me what I want, right? So we struggle with idols regarding children. How about this? You ever struggle with an idol of power or security? If I could just have this, I would be okay. I would have peace in my life that I want. I could breathe. I could relax. I could just skip through, right? And maybe that's a bank account being a certain number. Maybe it's a retirement figure. Uh, Maybe it's influence in the job. Power and security. How about this? Idols of sex or other pleasurable experiences. Are we still there? We're still there, aren't we? And it could be other pleasurable experiences. It could be entertainment. It could be a hobby. It could be an experience. We can put addictions in there. We can put all sorts of uh, entertainment issues. We can put video games in there. We can put movies in there. We can put media in there. We can put a lot of things in there because the reality is we love things that are fun and pleasurable. Some of them, you know, overtly ungodly. Some of them 
God says can be okay, but we pursue them as an ultimate end and that makes them idolatrous. How about prosperity? You ever given food a role that God never intended for it to have? Right? I just got to have this. I can't say no. Happiness. This is going to make me happy. Peace, right? I'm going to do this because it's going to bring it's going to bring some sanity in our house. Money, health, ease. Am I stepping on your toes yet? Entertainment, a cure, right? Oh, I've got to find a cure. You know, we, we all pray and hope for people that are suffering that there would be a cure. But you know what the reality is? In a broken, fallen world, sometimes there is no cure. And even if there is, we all die, don't we? We all get old and we all die. Stuff. And here's the thing to see. All of that is false worship because what we're doing is we're valuing and trusting other things instead of God. I think that Isaiah has something to say to us. Because the reality is, when we get under the hood of idolatry, we struggle with all the same things that 7th century Israelites struggled with. Don't we? You know, we, we come up with sophisticated names, right? We don't call it worshiping the Baals. We call it getting a new iPhone. Entertainment. A relationship that's going to make me happy. But mark it, it's idolatry. It's nothing new under the sun. You say, how do I know, and this is not in your notes, but just just kind of spur reflection. How do you know what your idols are? Just, just a couple of questions, or a couple of blanks to fill in. Just, just kind of you know, think with me. You don't need to write these down, but just kind of think through this with me. I have to have blank to be happy. Ask your spouse that question if you're brave. When am I grumpy? When am I happy? Right? You might be surprised what you hear. I ultimately listen to blank when I'm making decisions or when I'm doing things. Now, now, footnote. Don't put in there what you know the right answer should be. Put in there what is actually true for you and me. Because we all know the Sunday school answers, but that, that's not what's going to help us. How about this? Strong, or I couldn't live without... Strong emotion tends to follow... See, our emotions link back to what we value in our heart, right? So when you see extreme anger, that's an idolatry alert. Anger is, is God's warning system that idolatry is occurring, right? What do you fret over? What do you worry? See, it's pointing to what you value. Coveting, depression, fear, all of those point back to what we value. And and that's part of why God gives us emotion. It exposes this part of us that God cares the most about, our inner man, our heart. Here's another convicting one. My mind tends to wander toward blank. And here's, here's the... And, and I, I hope I'm still friends with everybody when I say this, but um, here's the thing. When you discover that you have a few minutes of time you didn't think you were going to have, what happens? What pops into your mind? 
What do you pick up? What do you go do? Right? Where, uh, one of my professors said like this, when you spin the compass of your life, where does it stop in terms of where it's pointing? So those things can help us. And again, you know, strong emotion is often the result of you loving righteousness. Okay, well, that's good. So it's not like all strong emotion is pointing to something that's bad. I'm just saying these are things that help us to see what we value. And then we can evaluate. Is it a good value? Right. Is it it a righteous value or is it in some way idolatrous? Now, what is God's diagnosis in all this? This is really interesting. God puts his finger on the issue. Look at verse nine. What is God going to do? So the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased, or that word means to lower oneself, but do not forgive them. Isaiah is saying we deserve the humbling, humiliation, lowering of God, and we are so guilty of egregious offenses, we do not deserve even forgiveness. Notice verse 11. The proud look on, the proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased or lowered. Verse 17. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. What is the heart behind idolatry? According to those verses, it's pride. Pride is saying there is something better than God that goes in that middle box. There is something better than God that is more valuable. That's pride. It's saying we don't need God. We don't want God. We can do it ourselves. So God's diagnosis, the pride of idolatry. And notice also verse 22. Here's God's conclusion. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils for why should he be esteemed? So you got these, these twin heart diagnoses here. The pride of idolatry and an ultimate trust in people. Now why trust in people? Because that was the main temptation. It wasn't. Look at all these Assyrians. And we're tempted to go after their gods, participate in their rituals, uh, go after their uh, uh, experiences, engage in their alliances, follow their culture. So it's a pride of idolatry and it's a trust in people. And I would suggest to you, as you and I look inside our hearts to determine what is leading us into sin, I guarantee you, you will always see pride and you will always see a trust in people instead of a trust in God. Is this not relevant? It's amazing how how, uh, applicable this all is. So what's God going to do about it? Hang on. Is your seatbelt fastened? Verse 9. The common man has been humbled. The man of importance has been abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. For the proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. God says, I will not compete with your idols. I will destroy them. And I will destroy you. 
verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. If you like the underlined stuff, that's it. That day. The prophets talk about a day a lot. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's called a day of reckoning. Sometimes it's just called the day because everybody knows what we're talking about. It's the day of God's wrath and judgment against everyone verse 12 who is proud and lofty against everyone who is lifted up that he may be lowered or abased or humbled and it will be against all the cedars of lebanon this is interesting they look around at all the beauty of the creation and god says my judgment is coming even on the blessings of creation that you enjoy against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased or lowered. Notice the repetition of that phrase that occurs three times. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Pride in people will be humbled People will be lowered and God alone will be exalted. And that's that's the chorus of this. It's repeated three times. Verse 18. But the idols will completely vanish. And watch this. Verse 19. Men will go into the caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. When he arises to make the earth tremble and in that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship. So they're, they're throwing their pantheon to bats and moles saying, get rid of these. But it's too late because the day has already come. Verse 21 and in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. God will exalt his great name in a terrible day of reckoning. That's what's coming. He will come in wrath to judge. People will try to hide from God. Just ask Adam and Eve. Playing hide and seek with God doesn't work very well. He is coming in judgment. He is coming in wrath. But God will humble and lower them. Notice that. What God is after is humble trust and submission. That's, that's the essence here. That's the hard issue. He wants humble trust and submission to Him. Not about the statues. It's not about the idols themselves. It's about the false worship of the heart and the pride that drives it. Repentance is humbling ourselves and submitting to God. People will see the folly of their idolatry as their idols dissolve. They're casting them the bats and moles. They see God is destroying their idols. We think of the other prophets that say, in that day, what's your idol going to do? How's your idol going to help you on the day of God's wrath? It's a piece of wood that you carved. And it's going to help you. And they will experience, notice the repetition of this phrase three times, sinful mankind will experience the terror and the splendor of his majesty. And the splendor of his majesty is not admirable and wonderful when you are in your sin. It is something that evokes unspeakable terror. As the king of kings and the one who is holy, holy, holy comes in judgment over you. 
So what's God's conclusion? Stop trusting in people. Stop trusting in yourself. Repent of pride. That's trusting yourself. Repent of the fear of man. That's trust in people. Trust your God. Trust Him for who He is. Submit to Him. Um, You know what that means a lot of times? We want to view God as our own genie in a bottle, right? Uh, We had a a, a person say to us, not not a Christian, um, wasn't happy about the weather. I mean, were you getting blown away yesterday too? 40 mile an hour winds, right? And uh, this this friend of ours who's an unbeliever kind of mockingly said, well, you talk to God, talk to him about the weather, right? You and God are like this, right? And, and, and that's the perception of God. He's a genie, right? You go to him, you rub the lamp, and you say, I want a nice sunny day with no wind so I can do this, that, or the other thing. Okay, and God says, as you wish. And that's not the God of Scripture, isn't it? The God of Scripture is we trust and submit to him as the one who runs the universe and does all things well. And we, we trust him and follow his ways even when he doesn't give us the things we think we need or the things that we want. And that's the, that's the essence of, the essence of idolatry is turning God into avenging machine. And repentance means coming back and submitting to Him as that true creator and that wonderful savior that He really is. And we love Him and we trust Him and we follow Him and we wait on Him when He's not working near as fast as we might like, but we know His timing is perfect. Now, when will this day come? Well, you better stick around because you got to come back next time to find that out. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter that has slayed us in our hearts in terms of our idolatry. It has caused us to evaluate why we do what we do, the things that attract us and tempt us. Father, we see that uh, though our technology and, and, and society are sophisticated in some ways over Isaiah's day that uh, under the hood inside the hearts of our spiritual beings are the same struggles. Lord, I pray that we would just take a moment to confess that so often we do view you as a vending machine or a genie in a lamp that's just there to give us what we want. Father, might we repent of that and 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 trust that just having you is the most valuable thing we can have. And anything else that you do beyond that is under your divine care and your divine will. And we submit to that will, whatever our lot, whatever you decide. Father, make us patient in our trials. Help us to trust you when you aren't giving us things that we think we need. Will you help us to see through some of these temptations for security or relationships or money or pleasure? And might we come back to trust you most of all and be content with what you supply. And Lord, we thank you for the gospel that as we have been convicted in even just reading this chapter, we thank you for a savior, a high priest, who will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we come to him so we thank you for jesus thank you for the gospel Uh, lord burn these things in our hearts that we might walk in your ways in christ's name amen